0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. We hope you had a Merry Christmas and a wonderful holiday time. I think it's the new year. Happy New Year, Creatures of the Night! This is our first episode of 2019. Woo! We hope you had a lovely New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, and everyone's back to work! (laughs) Boo!
1: If I had realized that uh, this was going to be coming out, like, in the new year, I would have picked up, like, some kazoos or... (laughs)
0: Noisemakers. Yeah, I'm sure that would make good audio. Oh, yeah. How are you doing today, Sarah?
1: Doing just fine. Yeah, how are you?
0: I'm doing all right as well. I think the winter season did us well. Um, We both had a lot of time off and got to spend it with each other and with friends. And now we have to forget all that and And go back to
1: to work. Yes, that's right. (laughs) Um, Speaking of work, I had nothing to do this week for this episode, which made it real nice because it timed with my vacation. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: All, all's good for Sarah.
1: (laughs) I don't even know what the title is. Uh, What are we watching?
0: This week, Sarah, we are watching The Mad Monster from 1942, and it's a PRC movie.
1: Great. Fantastic. Starting off... The new year with a bang.
0: PRC, the Producers' Releasing Corporation, was founded by producer Sigmund Newfeld and his brother, director Sam Newfield. And you said Newfeld and then Newfield. That's correct. Okay. <laughs> it was basically founded for the purpose of Newfeld producing his brother's movies. Basically. That's fine. And it was perhaps the bottom rung of the Poverty Row studios. Bottom of the barrel, like, you get lower than this, you're doing exploitation movies and, and real amateur hour stuff, right? Yeah. This is actually the first movie that we're seeing that's actually directed by the studio's co-founder, Sam Newfield, however, who the studio was kind of designed to exist for, I guess you could say.
1: I wonder if this is going to be any good then. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so Sam Newfield... Was born in 1899 as Samuel Newfeld, and he was three years younger than his producer brother Sigmund Newfeld, and their younger brother Morris was a stage actor. So Samuel Newfeld so got a
1: producer, director, actor.
0: Yes, and Samuel Newfeld anglicized his name when he went into show business and became Sam Newfield, whereas his older brother Sigmund did not, which is why there's that Newfeld Newfield difference. Okay. So Sam Newfield's career in film began in 1932 and he began directing films for Poverty Row Studios produced by his brother in 1933. By 1939 he had directed 60 films. That's uh, like
1: six years? Yes. So that's 10 films a year.
0: On average Uh, and 1939 is when he and his brother founded Producers Releasing Corporation and made the first PRC film Hitler, Beast of Berlin.
1: Right, right. Also, I like to call PRC prick. (laughs) Uh,
0: So, the Newfield brothers ran PRC for eight years, uh, during which time Sam directed 119 films, including 19 in 1942 alone.
1: That's less than a month for each movie. Yep.
0: He occasionally used the pseudonyms Sherman Scott and Peter Stewart To hide that so many of PRC's films were the work of one director and create the illusion that the studio had more directors on contract than it did.
1: Fair. I can get behind that.
0: Newfield directed over 280 films total in his career, earning him the title of America's Most Prolific Sound Director.
1: I, I like the addition of sound because, like, we've talked in our early episodes about how well, at least relatively easier it was to just churn out silent films.
0: Yeah, you have people like D.W. Griffith who, especially before 1920, like mm-hmm. before sort of the form of the feature film started to become more sophisticated, like movies made in the 1910s, you know, D.W. Griffith was kicking out 120 movies a year, right? Like, yeah,
1: but they were all single reel.
0: Exactly. So, um, previous PRC films that we've seen on the show... Uh, were Torture Ship, uh, which was their second production, and The Devil Bat.
1: Which we greatly enjoy, Devil Bat. Torture Ship, not so much.
0: Yeah. The primary inspiration for The Mad Monster was the smash success of The Wolfman from Universal, which this film was designed to emulate, uh, while also incorporating elements from the ever-reliable low-budget standby Mad Scientist subgenre.
1: I mean, even with like the title, The Mad Monster, they could possibly be riffing off of the um, monster film that Cheney made before. Man-made monster? Yeah, the man-made monster. Right. You know, mad monster, man-made monster.
0: Yeah, I'll get there. Okay. <laughs> the script for Mad Monster was written by Fred Mitin, who is a frequent PRC employee. Uh, he and a
1: is- good writer. <laughs>
0: Uh, he wrote Hitler Beast of Berlin. Uh, he'd been writing in Hollywood since 1916 and had over a hundred writing credits to his name by this time. Wow. So The Mad Monster uh, stars George Zuko as its mad scientist. He was born. And he just
1: wants to get his honor back?
0: No. <laughs> he was born in 1886 in Manchester, England, to a dressmaker and a Greek merchant. He began his acting career in Canada in 1908 and toured the American vaudeville circuit with his wife in the 1910s. He served in the British Army in the First World War, losing the use of two of his fingers when he was shot in the right arm. Wow. He has the fingers, he just can't do nothing with them. He was a leading stage actor in Britain in the 1920s, and made his British film debut in 1931. He moved to Hollywood in 1935, and established a career playing villains. In the 1940s, he took every role he was offered... Uh, resulting in a career that saw highlights like playing Professor Moriarty in the first Basil Rathbone, Sherlock Holmes film, Mm. but also a lot of B-movies and Poverty Row pictures. Uh, We last saw George Zuko in 1940's The Mummy's Hand, uh, where he played the evil high priest Andahab.
1: So I've probably already made these Avatar The Last Airbender jokes about Possibly,
0: Possibly. Okay. (laughs) This is, um, The Mad Monster is not... The last time we'll see George Zuko. Uh, this is his second of what's going to be a lot of appearances on Scream Scene.
1: And I'm sure that every time I will make avatar references. Uh,
0: yes, it's almost assured. <laughs> Playing the monster in this film, the titular mad monster, is the aptly named Glenn Strange. He was born in 1899. Uh, his full name is George Glenn Strange. He was of Irish Cherokee descent and claimed to be an eighth-generation grandson of Pocahontas and John Rolfe. He grew up in West Texas, and by age 12 he was performing at rodeos playing fiddle and guitar. At the same time? No. By 1928 he was on the radio, and in 1930 he came to Hollywood as part of the singing group the Arizona Wranglers. In 1932 he appeared in his first film, a western serial, And he would go on to appear in hundreds of Westerns in his career, uh, usually as a bad guy, either as an outlaw or part of a gang or like a rival sheriff, basically just always the bad guy. Uh, And this continued into the era of television. Uh, On the Lone Ranger television series, he played Butch Cavendish, who um, in the first episode kills all the Texas Rangers, save for the one of them.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. We talked about the Lone Ranger last episode, or something.
0: Yes, uh, because we were talking about the actor who played the Lone Ranger's older brother. Yeah, yeah. Now Strange was six foot five Dang. and two hundred and twenty pounds.
1: Okay, so he he's good for a monster. Role. Yes,
0: it was probably on this basis that he was cast in Mad Monster, which was his first horror film. Uh, but it won't be his last.
1: I mean, here's the thing. Last episode or some episode ago there was some guy whose last name was Coffin. <laughs> and I was like so he had a horror career and you were like, No, this is like his only one and I was like, That's a
0: someone missed out. Yeah. You know?
1: They 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 missed the boat on that one.
0: Cry and shame.
1: So at least this guy, Strange, is capitalizing on it. I mean like, yeah, he if he was a doctor, you know, there's also like some roots for you there, you know, Marvel superhero. DC supervillain.
0: I mean, I mean, to be fair, like, the Marvel Doctor Strange isn't going to exist for another, like, 20 years, but, okay. But you know what
1: I'm, what I'm saying, right? We got, sure. we got the, ooh, Doctor Strange, and the, yeah, 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 Doctor Hugo Strange. Yes. Okay. But this guy knew what he was doing when he got into <laughs> horror is what I'm saying. Sure. Um, he's like Strange doesn't work with cowboys. Strange I mean, he, works with sci-fi and
0: horror. He did do a lot of westerns, like mostly westerns. Like that was most of his career westerns. I mean, sometimes you gotta do westerns. your bread
1: and butter, but he's like, he, I know my true calling.
0: Okay. My name
1: is calling.
0: Okay, Sarah. I feel like the six foot five is the reason he ended up in horror mostly. I mean, yes, having that last name certainly is a good look on a horror poster, but I feel like it was mostly the six foot five. Okay. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll be seeing more of Glenn Strange in the future. Uh, as our damsel in distress this week, we have Anne Nagel, who oh. continues her run of horror films. Mad Monster would be her third in a row after Mad Doctor of Market Street and Mad Maid Monster.
1: To be fair, the Mad Doctor of Market Street was not a horror movie.
0: Yes, we did disqualify it. But I do like that the three movies she made in a row were Man-Made Monster, Mad Doctor of Market Street, and The Mad Monster. Yeah. So this is going to be her last horror film. Uh, So this is the last time we'll see Anne Nagel. Uh, She retired from acting in 1957 and passed away from liver cancer in
1: 1966.
0: Oh. Our hero this time around is played by Johnny Downs, who is perhaps best remembered as playing Johnny in the Our Gang shorts from 1923 to 1927 when he was 10 to 14 years old. Um, That would place him before the sort of classic era of Our Gang which would be like 1935 to 1940. That's when you get like the standard cast everyone thinks of when they think of like The Little Rascals. Yeah. Uh, After sort of Leaving the Our Gang shorts, uh, Downs aged into the college musical genre of the <laughs> 1930s. Uh, he was often cast as a team captain because he had those kind of like. Features. Yeah, standard good looks. He appeared.
1: Unhand her Dan backslide.
0: <laughs> yeah. He appeared in many other musicals through the 1940s. Uh, He was a singer and a dancer, uh, so he was often like a background dancer or an additional singer in those movies. And from 1953 to 1968, he hosted an after-school kids show on local San Diego television. (laughs) He passed away in 1994. So The Mad Monster was released on May 8th. 1942, and today it's perhaps most famous for having been banned by the British Board of Film Censors, who denied the film a release certificate until 1954. Why? Uh, Well, when it was finally released in the UK, it was with an X rating. (laughs) What the heck? And it was required to be shown with a notice at the start reading... The public would be quite mistaken to think that any personal characteristics could be passed on by blood transfusion. Animal blood is never used for transfusions in the treatment of disease. Oh, should I give a brief overview of blood transfusions? Um, maybe you can point folks to, like, the episodes where we've talked about it, because we've certainly talked about it enough times.
1: Yeah, so the first time I talk about it is in Orlex um, from 1924, that's episode 12, Uh, mainly because they transplant hands. Um, And so I talk a little bit about blood transfusion there. And then um, I go into a bit more further detail in Wolf Blood from 1925, episode 15. But I will just note that going into Wolf Blood, we didn't know it was about blood transfusions. So I give that info in the second half of the episode if you want to go and listen back.
0: For sure. But we've certainly seen the, like, getting blood transfusions... Gives you the characteristics of the person or thing you got the transfusion from trope before now.
1: Yeah, and it was a real fear. Mm-hmm. Like, it was a real thing. Like, again, I go more into this in Wolf Blood, and I don't have the work, yeah, I don't have the, notes know, the in research front in front of me, but, like, there was a guy who got blood transfusions from a pig mm-hmm. when they were first figuring out how to do this. Yeah. And he didn't live long, but um, he, like, lived long enough to, like, go back into society and people like ostracized him and there was like mobs after him because they were like he can't be human now.
0: Right, yes.
1: Um but then he died because you can't use blood like pig blood no. in stuff. Yeah. So it's a legitimate sorry, legitimate fear is probably the wrong phrasing, but it's
0: It was a real fear.
1: Yeah, it was a real fear, not just you know, a made-up fear. By horror movies.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it, people were really afraid of this. It wasn't legitimate in the sense that there was nothing to it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I get the feeling that, like, the BBFC banned this movie, like, because they did, they felt like it was distasteful or repugnant to, like, suggest that fear, I guess. Um, certainly, like, the nature of this, like, PSA that they put at the start of the movie suggests that they, like, thought that audiences couldn't identify you know the difference between fiction and non-fiction
1: i mean you could argue that like this kind of fear even if it's coming from a fictional place could have real impacts with someone refusing blood transfusions because of this irrational fear
0: for sure and like there's always people who even if they understand that the story is fictional might think that like the things shown in the story have real basis. Like, I, I don't know, I always, I knew a kid in school who after every movie we ever watched always asked, was that a true story? <laughs> Regardless of, like, what we had seen.
1: Sure. And we have also seen with movies like Murders in the Vue Morgue, for example, mm-hmm. um, or Island of Lost Souls, the extreme push and backlash against questions about, like, what are the differences between human and beast? Sure. With, like, suggestions of bestiality.
0: Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because the code in America, like, we haven't seen movies that have dealt with that for a long time. Yeah. And it's hard to, you know, when we saw those movies at the start of the 30s, we understood that it was expressing a lot of, like, legitimate um, anxiety people had over the theory of evolution and stuff. And it's hard to judge you know, what, how had people's attitudes changed by 1941. But I guess, you know, if this was banned in Britain, they didn't want it getting brought up, I guess. And then, yeah, to have it come out with an X rating in 1954. And I'm I'm going to bet that, like, I mean, when you're a horror fan and you hear a movie was banned, like, I think that gets you, like, excited, right? You're like, this is going to be good. And I have a feeling, like, that's not going to be the case because otherwise, like, it's a PRC movie by you know, Mr. PRC himself, so like... Yeah, Mr. Prick. Right.
1: Um, <laughs> Yeah, if a film is banned, it has more to do with, like, it, at least in this case, has more to do with what it's probably suggesting hmm. than any actual transgression of boundaries.
0: I, You know, and there's also that thing where, like, I feel like when you hear a movie was banned or something, like, you build it up in your mind, and then every time when you see it, you're like, oh, that was... That was nothing.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: So um, the other thing that is noteworthy about Mad Monster is it's the second film on our show to have been covered on Mystery Science Theater 3000. Um, it was the subject of their third Comedy Central uh, episode in like their first season as a nationwide show. Sure. Uh, last week's episode, we did Corpse Vanishes, which was Mystery Science Theater 3000's fifth episode.
1: How are we watching this movie?
0: Well, uh, this movie's public domain. It's up on YouTube, so we're going to watch it off the Scream Scene YouTube playlist. I'm not really aware of any good DVD release, uh, so,
1: yeah. All right. Well, folks, if you want to watch along, you can find that Scream Scene YouTube playlist on our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical break, and when we come back, we will discuss... The Mad Monster, directed by Sam Newfield.
0: See you on the other side, everybody.
1: And welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Mad Monster from 1942, directed by Sam Newfield. Ben, what did you think of this?
0: You know, it's fine. And... You say that every time. No, but like... (laughs) It's... So when we said that about Ghost of Frankenstein, we were like, this is fine, right? And Ghost of Frankenstein, like, when I say something's fine, it sort of indicates I think it's kind of middle of the road, right? But... There's, like, a different emphasis here, where, like, a Frankenstein movie being middle of the road means it's a massive disappointment to your mother and I. Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, it's it's a big come down. This movie being middle of the road was like, all right, because it's a PRC movie from (laughs) Sam Newfield. You know what I mean? So it's just a
1: matter of where your expectations are going in.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah, I found this movie, I guess, boring, but I just felt unengaged with it for... Mm a bit of the movie, but it wasn't bad, you know? Yeah. If it was bad, I could be engaged with it in a way where it's, like, laughing at it.
0: Exactly. Like, like it's not as, like, train wreck bad as you think it's going to be, but it also isn't, like, anything special. Yeah, so
1: you're just like, yeah, it's on TV. Yeah. I'll zone out while, like, this show plays until dinner's ready, <laughs> you know? Okay, well, tell us what it's about.
0: Okay, so... The thing about the mad monster, other than that, like, the title could be better, because um, it's about a mad scientist who makes a monster.
1: But the question is, who's the monster, Ben?
0: Sure. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. The story is really like a throw-everything-but-the-kitchen-sink-at-it kind of story. Like, everything in this movie has kind of been done before. Like, mm-hmm. we've kind of seen all the tropes here. Um, but they are... Put together in like a fairly competent way, I will say. So...
1: Yeah, it doesn't feel as like blundery and choppy as some of the other rip-off movies we've seen.
0: Well, like Corpse Vanishes from last week where it was just a lot of tropes thrown together that didn't really fit. Yeah. This movie takes the effort of making them fit, right? So our first big trope is this is a mad scientist out for revenge movie. So the lead character, played by George Zuko, is Dr. Lorenzo Cameron. And he was, you know, laughed out of academia, thrown out of the faculty, they called him mad, all the usual stuff, because he has a theory whereby he can turn men into animal men by giving them transfusions of blood from animals. You know, that old chestnut. Yeah. And, um...
1: Because someone here saw wolf blood.
0: Right. Or like Island of Dr. Moreau, or probably just more accurately, The Wolfman and some (laughs) Boris Karloff movies. So he has left the city he was working in and is now in a, you know, old dark house in the swamps. So I think this is Florida.
1: Yeah, the only town name that they gave was Ashton, but that's like so generic that you you don't know. But like, the sets make it look like the swamps of Florida.
0: Yeah, like it's jungly, like overgrown, like wilderness swamps, right? Yeah. And I had to look up, like, can you find wolves in Florida? Because the specific animal that Dr. Cameron's taking blood from is wolves. Turns out the answer is yes. Uh, They have red wolves in Florida, which are kind of like a coyote gray wolf.
1: Oh, that makes sense.
0: Middle of the road.
1: The, the animal actually depicted looked a lot more like a coyote.
0: Yeah, so I think it's a red wolf is what it is.
1: Interesting. Anyways. It's black and white, so we can't tell.
0: Right. So he's moved out there with his daughter, Lenora, and they've got a gardener, uh, Petro, who is played by Glenn Strange. And Petro is, I guess, like, the most accurate term for it in, like, the era this movie was made could be to call him simple-minded. He's just very simple-minded and sweet and kind, but, like, not bright at all, right? The thing is, he's very big and strong, so Cameron is going to start using him for his experiments. So he takes, you know, blood from wolves, he puts it into him, and it turns him into a wolf-man. Not the wolf-man, but just a wolf-man. and A wolf-like man. Right. And in this movie, what that means is he grows, like, long hair and, like, a big beard, and, like, a lot of like sideburn, mutton chops. mutton chops, and he has, like, pointed teeth. Like, he basically looks like an Appalachian hillbilly with pointy canine teeth. Yeah. It's, it's basically, honestly, it's exactly the Jack Pierce Wolfman design, just with none of the prosthetics. It's just the, like, hair framing the face thing and, like, sharp teeth. Yeah. Now, my favorite part of this whole movie comes right at the start, where... Zuko makes his wolfman and then you know he has the typical mad scientist like they called me mad speech but he actually hallucinates the specters of the specific professors who threw him out of the faculty like a in front of him so that he can like expound upon his theories to these like imaginary straw men and it's not just so that he can yell at them he imagines them talking back to him and asking him questions that he's then replying to it's amazing because it leads to Cameron's justification for his research. Because, you know, there's the standard like, oh, you violated the laws of nature and like, oh, you're not meant to tamper with the laws of man and, and God and so on. But then one of these imaginary professors thinks to ask Zuko, yeah, and even if you could do this crazy insane thing you can't do, why? Which is a great question that I feel no one asks mad scientists in these movies. Like, so often the answer is just for the sake of science itself.
1: Yeah, because I can.
0: But Cameron actually has, like, an answer, which is that... it's,
1: it's wild.
0: Yes. So it's that if he could turn men into wolf men, the idea is that they're only driven by, like, an instinct for, like, killing and violence. And they lose, like, human, like, rationality and conscience and morality. So give it to the U.S. Army and have werewolf soldiers fighting Nazis. Yep. That's his one, plan. Yep. He's doing it for the military applications. And one of the professors is like, "Right, but after you've made a million men into like crazy violent wolfmen, like how do you control them?" And he's like, "Well, I have an antidote that undoes it." And he's like, "Right, but how are you going to round up an entire army full of wolfmen and get them to all sit quietly while you do the antidote?" And he's like, "That's enough out of you," and he stops hallucinating.
1: This is a literal scene in the movie. Yes. I just want to make that crystal clear.
0: Yes. Basically, Cameron's plan, and we kind of understand that this is why we were shown these four scientists in hallucinatory form at the start, is he's going to get his revenge on these guys by sicking his pet wolfman on them. This is a mad scientist who's not only out for professional validation, but also out for personal revenge, and, like, has has a business plan. Yeah, exactly. So, good on him. Uh... (laughs) He's got a test. He's really bootstrapping here. Exactly. He's got a test, uh, you know, how the efficacy of his killing machine. So he turns Petro into the Wolfman, and then he just lets him go in the Florida Everglades. And Petro kind of wanders around until he finds a house full of swamp folk and just comes in through a bedroom window and mauls a little girl and then leaves and goes back to the doctor's house and the doctor gives him the antidote. And Petro can't, like, remember what happens when he's a wolf person. He sort of has these bad dreams and he just thinks that he's been sleepwalking. So obviously, this little girl getting mauled attracts a lot of attention, especially because one of the country folk saw Pedro running around. so there's this rumor about an animal that's walking on its hind legs and and slaughtering girls. And this is really attracting the attention of Tommy, who is a newspaper reporter, and he's played by Johnny Downs, and before. Dr. Cameron and his daughter and Pedro moved out from the city to the country. Uh, his daughter Lenora, who's Ann Nagel, had like a romantic relationship with Tommy. So Tommy heads over to the house of Professor Blaine, one of the professors who are going to get what's coming to them. And he wants some information from Blaine as like background material for his article on this slang, Because, you know, it's a animal. But it's walking on its hind legs, so what could it possibly be? And Tommy wants to run with the angle that, like, it's dinosaurs.
1: It's a lizard man.
0: Right. That's, you know, missing link Sasquatched its way into surviving in Florida. And Professor Blaine's like, mm, no, that would seriously damage my, like, professional reputation to even comment on such a thing. Sorry, dude. So Tommy leaves. And it's a little bit later that Professor Cameron shows up with Petro in tow and is like, Hey, Blaine, so remember when you said that, like, I was crazy and a madman and and my theories held no water? Uh, Well, what if I could prove them? And Blaine's like, oh, yeah, I mean, if you can prove them, like, I'm down, dude. Like, that'd be dope. Like, no hard feelings against you. It was just that we couldn't have, you know, a crazy person at the university.
1: But if you can prove it, it's not crazy, right? Exactly. You know, that's a true scientist.
0: Exactly. You know? Yes. Cameron creates, like, an elaborate <laughs> scheme. And honestly, like, it's kind of impressive where he sits Pedro down and he tells Professor Blaine, like, I've already given him one shot. To prepare him. He has to take another one in 20 minutes. Uh, so we have to wait till then. And Blaine's like, okay, okay, sure, sure. And then Cameron had earlier told his daughter to call him at this number to see if he would be coming home. So he answers a phone call from his daughter. Is like, yep, I'll be there right away. Hangs up tells blaine oh i have to go pick my daughter up from like a friend's house sorry i have to leave you i'll be back before the 20 minutes are up but if i'm not you have to give him the shot yourself like at midnight you know and he even throws in like you know and hey if you really wanted to sabotage me you could just not give him the shot and blaine's like no, no 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 like professional ethics and honor and integrity and all that so cameron leaves and is like cool like bye and leaves blaine's house and goes over to the house of Professor Fitzgerald and is like, hey, I'm showing Blaine proof of my thing. Do you want to come and see? Fitzgerald's like, cool. So they're walking back. Meanwhile, Blaine does have to give Pedro the shot, which means Pedro turns into the wolfman and fucking murders Blaine and then takes off. And so when the police arrive, it's like, hey, he wasn't with Blaine when Blaine was killed. Cameron, that is. And he has an airtight alibi because he was with Fitzgerald. Uh, so he clearly had nothing to do with the murder. Uh, and once again... And it was
1: it was some animal. You yes. See? Like the way he's mauled, it was some animal. Some
0: animal. So this attracts the attention of Tommy the reporter. He's like, okay, huh, maybe there's a connection here. So Tommy the reporter heads down to the Swamplands uh, to go find out what's what. And Professor Cameron is none too happy about Tommy's arrival because, you know, the newspapers were what really humiliated him. So even though it wasn't Tommy himself, he doesn't like newspaper people. And I feel like Cameron's one big problem in terms of his trying to seem innocent, even though he's carrying on like a campaign of revenge thing, is that he has a hard time, like, keeping his true feelings hidden. You know, he's the kind of guy who will say like, oh yes, I invited Dr. Fitzgerald over for dinner. And you know, his daughter will be like, oh, we haven't seen Dr. Fitzgerald for a while. It'll be nice to see him again. And he'll be like, nice? That pompous fool who told me I was wrong? Yes, I'll uh, have him over for dinner. He's he's not good at keeping a lid on things. So he kind of throws Tommy out of the house angrily. Which, you know, not a good way to not look suspicious. I guess he kind of realizes that because the next morning he goes out and, like, apologizes to Tommy. Unfortunately for Cameron, Petro's pulling a Jekyll and Hyde and starting to transform with no serum. Uh, just when he hears the wolves howling out in the swamp.
1: It's when the mist rises from the swamp.
0: Right. So he's going out at night and rampaging around and, you know, getting the local swamp people, uh, really on edge and causing a lot of, problems. Uh, Does he kill someone?
1: I mean, every time it's morning, they're like, oh, there's another mauling. Right. So, presumably, but no one on screen.
0: He makes it back to Cameron's house, and Cameron's like, well, if you're transforming on your own, like, fuck it, you're no good to me. Uh, So he pulls out a gun to just kill Petro, and then he's like, wait, no, sorry, I forgot. I'm doing a whole revenge scheme thing. We'll wait till after that's done. (laughs) He invites Professor Fitzgerald over to be like, hey... I have proof of my stuff, and Fitzgerald comes over, and and Cameron takes him down into his secret laboratory and shows him around, and Fitzgerald's like, oh, you're clearly crazy, Uh, because he is. Cameron's just really bad at not seeming totally crazy at any given opportunity. Fitzgerald's like, yeah, I'm not sticking around for this, I'm not watching this sideshow, like I'm leaving, and Cameron's like, oh, well, gosh. You know, that is too bad. Uh, hey, if you're heading back into town, my gardener needs to head back into town. Do you mind driving him in with you? So, of course, Cameron's already given Petro the shot. Pedro gets into the car with Fitzgerald. They drive off. Petro transforms into, you know, a fanged hillbilly, attacks Fitzgerald, and the car, you know, drives off the side of the road and crashes. Meanwhile, Tommy has been going around with the swamp folk, like, trying to find the monster. And instead, uh, they find... Fitzgerald, badly wounded, Uh, so they take Fitzgerald back to the nearest house, which is Cameron's, and they call for a doctor, because Fitzgerald isn't, you know, dead yet. Yet. Spoiler. Uh, And Tommy is like, okay, well, we have to wait for him to regain consciousness again, because then he'll be able to tell us, like, what is this thing that's been attacking everybody? Cameron's like, "Mm." (laughs) hmm. Well, basically, everyone's back is turned. Cameron goes and, you know, gets some poison
1: he, he kills him off screen yeah
0: he kills Fitzgerald so that by the time the doctors arrived the doctors like yep he's dead it's like sorry nothing we can do here meanwhile even though the the swamp people found Fitzgerald Pedro's still out there wandering the swamplands and he manages to like make his way back into Cameron's house on his own. But because Cameron's not like really paying attention to this, he doesn't know to open basically the back door to let Pedro in to the laboratory again. Meanwhile, Tommy and Cameron are having sort of a confrontation because Tommy's starting to put the pieces together that maybe Cameron has something to do with something. Leaving Lenora alone to start wandering around the house and find the secret passage to the secret laboratory, and eventually find, like, the door that leads to, sort of, outside, which lets Petro in to threaten her, because he's the monster and she's the girl. So that's all happening when, of course, it's, you know, a lightning storm outside. This is a horror movie, and it's the climax. And a bolt of lightning from outside comes in through a window and hits a drape, in the living room. It
1: hits chemicals.
0: Oh, does it hit chemicals? Why are they in the living room?
1: I I don't know, dude. Okay. But it hits chemicals. That's why it bursts into flames so quickly.
0: Okay, I seem to remember it just, like, hitting the drapes and the drapes lighting on fire, but you're probably right. Regardless, the whole fucking house, like, goes up in flames, and while Lenora and Tommy are escaping, the monster, of course, finds Cameron and turns on him and kills him, because, you know... Of course, that's the ending.
1: Comeuppance.
0: And uh, the house burns down, which means basically that no one, like, Petro dies, Cameron dies, and no one ever knows, you know, what was really going on. But our breeding pair did successfully make it out alive once again. The end. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so there's a little bit of Jekyll and Hyde in here. Obviously, Wolf Man, but you could also make the argument for Man Made Monster yeah. in here.
0: Any Boris Karloff Columbia movie, take your pick.
1: Honestly, I, I do feel like someone watched Wolf Blood because of the tying of Wolf Man and Blood. That was what Wolf Blood was. Yeah, for sure. Um, to the point where, like, we were disappointed it wasn't a quote-unquote actual werewolf movie. Mm-hmm. So I. I don't know, me, unless someone just, like, came upon the same idea.
0: I mean, we did have that Carloff Columbia pictures where, you know, the violent instinct of a murderer was transferred into a guy because he got a blood transfusion from him. Or it was, like, a spinal transfusion or something, right? Like yeah. Like, the, yeah. the idea of these transfusions giving the um, attributes of the donor... It has been used a few other places, but I... Yeah,
1: I mean, like, we talked a little bit about that with just, like, the common misconception about blood transfusion. Yeah. So it could be, very well be that someone just happened upon the same idea as the writers of wolf blood.
0: That being said, because the writer of this movie, like we know, had been in Hollywood since, like, 1916, it's not, like, super out of the question. Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing really new here, and the movie's very clearly low budget, uh, but honestly, like, I found it to be surprisingly competent.
1: I guess maybe we shouldn't be surprised because it's one of the co-founders of the company who's right. the director. Like, the company was founded to fund this director's movies, so of course he's going to be one of the better directors of PRC.
0: I mean, either he was going to be one of the better directors or he was going to be the worst one. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like when you have a, a company sure. that's, like, founded specifically to make garbage, like, I don't know. But, um... I think probably just the worst thing in this movie is just, like, the monster makeup because it's really... The problem is that there's nothing really specifically wolfy about it. It's kind of underwhelming. But that being said, like, it's a low-budget movie.
1: I mean, I didn't find the makeup too bad. It was more Glenn Strange's, uh, Strange acting as the monster. He's doing the same Lon Chaney, like like, weird paw hands, and just, and he just walks around on set. Like, at least Chaney is kind of, like, trying to do, like, a duck and cover kind of thing. This dude's just, like, wandering, like, oh.
0: He's not doing anything I'm wolf-like. Lost. That's the thing. He's, I, I thought he was fine as the monster. Mm-hmm. Um, the I sound effects with him
1: growling are good. Yeah,
0: but you're right. It's not specifically wolf-like. And the makeup really isn't specifically wolf-like either. Like, it's about... You know, I I said while we were watching it that it kind of looked like the Frederick March version of Hyde. Right? Like, it's just kind of animalistic. As the monster... Like, he's... To me, he feels like he's doing a Karloff thing. Because he's kind of doing the, like, I'm big and I'm tall and I'm stumbling about. And I'm going to strangle you or whatever. But I think he gives, like, a pretty... Like, it's a bad role. But he does a pretty good job with it. I mean... He's a believable moron when he's Petro, and uh, I think he sells the monster well, even though the makeup is kind of lackluster and it's a bad costume.
1: So something just kind of clicked for me. Mm. Like, I see where you're coming from, 100%. There was a guy in the circus known as Wolf Boy. His actual name is Fidor Jeftichu. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but he was better known as Jojo the Dog-Faced Boy.
0: Oh, I remember him now. Wasn't he in Freaks?
1: I don't remember if he was in Freaks, but um, here's a picture of him.
0: You can kind of see
1: how that would be the inspiration for both Chaney and Strange's makeup jobs
0: here. Yeah, he just basically has a lot of hair.
1: Yeah. So I wonder, I don't know why I never thought of this before, but I wonder if that's why Jack Pierce designed the makeup that way. Mm,
0: For sure. I mean, I'm ragging on the makeup, but I. it's better effects-wise than, like, the bats and the devil (laughs) bats. Yeah. The, Um, The thing is, is it's not as much fun as that, right? Like, those bats were so bad that we got a huge kick out of them. This isn't good enough as makeup to be impressive, but it's also not bad enough to be... Fun.
1: Exactly. You know what was great? Okay. Zuko.
0: Yeah! Zuko was really good. I think he's the thing that really makes the movie work. He really sells being... Mad. A disgraced, revenge-obsessed mad scientist.
1: There's even one scene where he gets to laugh maniacally as he, like, gets the serum ready. I think it's right before he, like, gives Pietro to Fitzgerald to get him into town. It's like... Maybe that's like the one scene that I got my my most enjoyment out of.
0: Yeah, I mean sometimes he goes a little bit over the top, but it feels more like he's just unable to contain himself. He is believable both as like the egocentric madman and as the scientist. Like mm-hmm. he delivers his lines intelligently, he's sort of middle-aged and you could just I just was able to buy him as someone who actually had done all this science work, but also, you know, he was very easy to buy as someone who just takes insults very easily. Like, he talks in the movie about how he was run out of town, and how he was humiliated, and how he was ridiculed, and how it was the worst possible thing that ever happened to him, and, you know, how much he hates all these other guys, but when we meet these other guys and see their initial interactions with them, like, they're fairly friendly, Yeah, like... And they're all like, yeah, it was nothing personal. And, like, the reporters, like, yeah, the newspapers didn't say anything like that. Like, you really almost get the feeling that, like, a lot of this was in his head.
1: I mean, he's mad. Yes. So, of course, he would take things a bit too far. But I definitely agree that, um, like, even Lenora is like, why did we have to leave all of a sudden? Like, why? What? Like, I'm with you, Dad. Sure, I'll come and support you. But why? We didn't really need to do this.
0: So I am kind of sick of mad scientists who are out for revenge against the academic establishment at this point. And George Zuko plays it so well here that I think this is about as well as it can be played. Like, there's nowhere left to go with this archetype until you get to, like, comic book supervillain unhand me Batman before I destroy the city kind of levels you know in terms of a horror movie archetype like this is as good as it gets I kind of want to just leave it alone for a while I'm kind of done with it
1: yeah like what do you think about the way that this trope I'm assuming anyways morphs itself into the sci-fi of the 50s I I haven't seen enough uh, 50s sci-fi to, like, feel like I can actually say that this trope morphs its way, but I'm assuming.
0: The difference is that in all of these movies you have, like, the villain's the mad scientist and the hero is, like, a reporter or some shit. Once you get to the 50s, the hero's usually a scientist too. Mm. Like, you have the bad scientist that creates the monster or whatever. Like, but you still have a good scientist because by then... So much of America's um, preeminence on the international stage was coming from its scientific achievements mm. that the attitude towards science was very different, right? So,
1: so what do you think of that trope changing? Does it change enough for you if the protagonist is also a scientist?
0: I just think that I'm sick of it now. Like, okay. like in isolation, it's fine or whatever, but it definitely has become a cliché And you have to start doing more interesting things with it. Like, you know, even once you get to comic book supervillain stuff, you know, Mr. Freeze, it's because his wife is dying, not just because he was laughed out of the academy for his wild ideas or whatever. Like, that's the part where it's like a character archetype starts to become tiresome when you don't do any work at all to individualize your take on it right? Mm. Where you're just giving it, it's the exact same motivation, it's the exact same character every single time. And Zuko does it really well, so I don't need to see it ever again now.
1: Sure. Does he do it better than Karloff?
0: I think so, because... Karloff
1: is still (sighs) doing the sympathetic.
0: Yeah, so Karloff's thing was his movies always tried to ride this line between Karloff being the, like, villain, but also being sympathetic, And so it, I never felt Karloff successfully managed to, you know, make the guy who loves his family and loves his wife and just wants to do the right thing with the guy who's murdering off his rivals. Like, that never felt like a connection there. Whereas, like, as much as Zuko's a little bit over the top with how he plays Cameron, it's, I think, more believable that you have this scientist who, like, can't put on that nice face, at least not for very long. Mm-hmm. It's it's more believable than, you know, when we're watching Horror Island and, like, the antiquarian is, you know, a nice, meek old guy until the very end and then it turned out he was a villain the whole time because, like, wow, that's impressive acting then, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah. Speaking of um, Anne Nagel, she's fine. It's a typical, thankless role. But I think her performance in it kind of sums up how I feel about this movie. Okay. As the movie's main female character, she's not really good enough to be noteworthy, right? Like, the character doesn't do anything that makes us sit up and go like, oh, that's impressive. Yeah. But she's not bad enough to be noteworthy either. Like, she's not doing anything that makes us go like, oh, that's really sexist. Like, she's just there. Mm -hmm. And that's how I feel about a lot of this movie. You know, the script has no real original ideas, but it doesn't do anything overtly stupid, right? There's no moments where you're like, wait, what? That doesn't make any sense. It's a little wild, the extremes it goes to, but like, it's generally well thought out. The direction and the cinematography aren't flashy or stylish, but at least they know enough to create something of a horror atmosphere and not just brightly light everything. Like, it's just very middle-of-the-road for me.
1: hmm Yeah, that's kind of how I feel as well. Um, speaking of middle-of-the-road, Let's go and do inking.
0: Okay. So, Sarah, where are you kind of looking for the mad monster?
1: I had a little bit of a hard time, but my gut was kind of telling me between corpse vanishes Mm -hmm. at 45 down to the devil doll at 49.
0: Okay. Uh, I think your range is totally inside mine.
1: Oh, what's yours?
0: Um, so I... Because I felt so middle of the road about this movie, I decided to look at the middle of the list, uh, which is Dark Eyes of London at 44, because we've got 88 movies on the list. I thought Dark Eyes of London was better than this, but I thought this was potentially better than Corpse Vanishes, because as we were saying earlier, this like puts the pieces together better than Corpse Vanishes does, even if Corpse Vanishes has like a bit more fun in watching it just because it's so ridiculous. Yeah. So I thought maybe this could go above that. And then I worked my way down and I was like, but, you know, this is definitely better than the vampire bat because that does have that poverty row problem of, like, not really establishing a good horror atmosphere because everything's shot in a very bland way. Mm -hmm. And as I was saying about this movie, like, it's not stylish, but at least it knows to have shadows and mist and fog and, you know, darkness and stuff, right? Yeah. So, yeah, so you're totally inside my range.
1: Yeah, I felt like kind of to what you just said about putting the pieces together, Um, this is a horror movie. Mm -hmm. You know, like, it ends with our two, with our breeding couple, as you called them, holding each other as they see this house burned down.
0: Yes, that to their knowledge has, like, her dad inside, uh, and like... Some wild mm creature. Right, exactly, and they have no idea what happened to Petro, and they'll never know... ...what the deal with her dad was.
1: Yeah, and the body of Fitzpatrick is in there. Fitzgerald. Yes. Um, so there goes that possibility of, like, you know, doing an autopsy or yeah, whatever. yeah, for sure. So that's where the movie ends. So it, it's a mild horror movie, but it's firmly in the horror genre. Whereas the Devil Doll
0: yeah, is, is not quite there. It's something. a little wild. Yeah, the Devil Doll's like, yeah, this is a heist movie and a sci-fi movie... And a revenge movie, and a horror movie, and a family drama, like...
1: Yeah, it has a lot going on. And, yeah, I I don't know about even comparing this to Corpse Vanishes.
0: Well, looking above The Devil Doll, do we think that, like, the Art Deco stylishness of Mystery of the Wax Museum makes it better than this movie?
1: But Mystery of the Wax Museum also isn't firmly in horror, you know? It, It spends a lot of time with... The reporter girl.
0: Yeah, I think in that episode we said something along the lines that it was like a episode of Batman the Animated Series that just happened to not have Batman in it. Yeah. So, it, I mean, if this is better than that, it's probably better than Return of Doctor X. Yeah. Because who knows what the fuck that movie was about.
1: <laughs> and then with Invisible Man Returns, I don't know, I keep thinking about that. Like, the whole movie is a horror movie, but it has that very dark scene of... I forget his name, but Vincent Price, mm-hmm. um, with that dude in the house, like, stringing him up like that. Yes. Um, that was honestly a little spooky and scary, whereas the rest of it was kind of a, a greatest hits Yeah. of the first one. Um, the Mad Monster also has a bit of a, a greatest hits feeling of, like, here's the Jekyll and Hyde fe- part of it, here's the... Wolf Man-Made Monster part of it. Here's the Mad Scientist part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't feel like a, a reel of greatest hits. It's just like throwing things in. So I don't know.
0: The thing about Mad Monster is, if you hadn't... Mad Monster is maybe one of the first movies that we've watched that would have been helped by seeing it not as part of doing this show. Like, we mm. talk a lot about how... You know, oh, like, I have such a different appreciation of this movie because we're doing it as part of this show. And I feel like Mad Monster really would be better if, like, you hadn't just seen 15 fucking movies exactly like this in a row. <laughs> sure. You know what I mean? Like, like it's because it's, it's playing on these tropes that are so cliche at this point, but it does them all well enough that, like, in isolation, it's fine.
1: Yeah, yeah. We've hit a bit of a, a plateau with some of these horror movies. Like, the Wolfman definitely, like, caused a bit of a
0: spike there, but, like... Yeah, these, these B mad scientist horror movies all, like, kind of are starting to get a little samey, right? And it's like, you know, we're, we're over here wanting them to either be going the extra mile and being good, or really fucking being terrible, because either of those extremes <laughs> are interesting, right? Yeah. Otherwise, you're just kind of like, yeah, that was an hour. Sure. Um, so, okay, so does this go up below corpse vanishes or above corpse vanishes like is the competency of this movie worth more than the outrageousness of corpse vanishes
1: what was incompetent about corpse vanishes
0: the fact that like the story like didn't make any sense and it was just like a mad mishmash of elements where it was like yes he's a mad scientist but also there's this like vampiric like old lady and also they have the weird like servants who are, like, worshipping them as their masters and they're in a the castle, but they're in America, but, like...
1: I mean, sure, it's a mishmash, just as this is a mishmash of right. tropes, but, I... like, I don't know, it's just was... I don't know, I think I preferred Corpse Vanishes over this movie.
0: Corpse Vanishes is, I think, more interesting, and it's a funner movie to watch, and it has its charms, definitely, that this movie doesn't have. What I mean to say when I defend this movie against it is to say that, yes, both are mishmashes of tropes, but this does the work to make them all feel connected and like they belong in the same story, and I didn't feel like Corpse Vanishes did that enough. Corpse Vanishes was just like, yeah, and this is here because it's a horror movie for a lot of things. You know what I mean? Sure. But I'm not trying to say that it should go above Corpse Vanishes I'm just trying to defend my point about saying that this was competent in a way Corpse Vanishes wasn't that's all I'm trying to say fair but i recognize the value of the fact that Corpse Vanishes is doing some things you know it it's not Corpse Vanishes was at least something different
1: yeah it's it's mixing some things up in a new interesting way it it's there's it feels like there's some level of I guess creativity going into it. It
0: has some joie de vivre. Joy of life? <laughs> yeah, it felt like, watching Corpse Vanishes, it felt like everyone making that movie was having a fun time making it, right? Whereas, like, this movie just kind of feels like everybody's doing their job, and George Zuko's just, you know...
1: Having a fun time with
0: it. Right, but, like, this movie feels, like, as much as it feels competent, it's also not special in any way. It's just there, Right? Corpse Vanishes has some holes and has some things that make you go, wait, what? But that's the fun of watching Corpse Vanishes, is that it's willing to throw out wild ideas like that.
1: So for me, I would put the Mad Monster below Corpse Vanishes. I Did we come up with a definitive feeling on Invisible Man Returns and this?
0: Yeah, I think we... I don't know. Because you were talking about how they were both highlight reels and... It's tough, because, like, I think you're right that, like, Invisible Man Returns has, like, one scene in it that outstrips, like, everything in this movie. But, like, is that work? Like, this movie, at least, is taking a bunch of tropes from different movies and putting them together. Invisible Man Returns is literally like, hey, have you seen Invisible Man? This is just that, again. Like, there are scene-for-scene scene things. You know, oh, here's the scene where he sits down and explains how he wants to take over the world, because he's actually maniacal, like...
1: Yeah, but there's a feeling of, like, you losing your mind. first, And, like, will I save my mind in time? Mm. No. Versus Mad Monster, where dude's just mad and reveling in it.
0: Yeah, I mean, fair. There's no character arcs in Mad Monster at all. Like, Vincent Price has a character arc in Invisible Man Returns that takes him from... Because he's, like, a fugitive from the law who only became invisible so he could, like, escape the police or whatever, right? And he's trying, he knows it's a serum that makes him go crazy and he's trying not to and he does instead. And in this movie, everyone's a static character, right? Nothing changes about anybody here.
1: Uh, except for Petro.
0: Yeah, but that's not a character arc. That's a serum.
1: (laughs) I think for me, Mad Monster goes below Invisible Man Returns then.
0: Okay, that's fine. So entering the list at number 47, The Mad Monster from 1942, directed by Sam Newfield.
1: If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can also find an appeals box where you can appeal this or any other ranking. You're also welcome to send appeals through email. You can email screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or yell at us on Twitter at underscore screamscene.
0: Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can help out the show by leaving a rating or a review on a platform that allows it or just by sharing the show with a friend, whether you're sharing us on social media or in real life. Um, We really appreciate the audience that has grown for the show and we're always trying to get more ears listening.
1: We appreciate who we have and we want more.
0: Exactly. Uh, speaking of wanting more, you can also head on to patreon.com slash podcast to become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Uh, this really helps us out. It helps with the hosting costs for the show. Um, and it just helps with the amount of work that goes into uh, prepping the show every week. Um, it helps us feel like that's um, something that we can do on like a regular basis you know we've we've
1: it helps us justify the time we put into it this yeah
0: i mean i think we've been going for what like 90 ish weeks now and we've never missed a week we've never even been late
1: yeah this is episode 92
0: yeah at higher levels you can get rewards on patreon at the five dollar a month level you get access to bonus audio that comes out every monday uh consisting of audio cut from previous episodes and at the ten dollar a month level You get monthly horror short stories uh, that I write that aren't published anywhere else. And at all of those levels, you get access to all the previous material that was there from before you became a patron. There's no timed posts on our Patreon. Um, So you can check out things like the Halloween short story I wrote about Frankenstein's monster and Dracula meeting up. Or you can check out the like EP of electronic Halloween music that Sarah put up in October. Um, it's a lot of really cool stuff. Uh, so head on over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast and check it out.
1: What are we watching next week?
0: Well, Sarah, it's a movie about a mad scientist oh, who boy. makes a monster starring George Suko as the mad scientist.
1: Oh, so we, we just watched this.
0: It's Dr. Renault's Secret from 1942, and it's from 20th Century Fox, who I don't think we've had a single movie on the show from, not even in their previous iterations as the two different studios, 20th Century and Fox. Huh? So I have really no idea what to expect okay. other than yet another mad scientist making a monster movie starring George Suko.
1: Well it's really unfortunate with the timing because we're our brains are just going to automatically compare it to PRC. Yes. So if it fucking
0: fails. That's real sad. Yeah.
1: Oof. Well, we will see you next week, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye.